John's Gospel to the 18th chapter. Word, John 18, beginning in verse 12. Then the detachment of the troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and did so, and so did another disciple. Now the, that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not alone you are not also of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants of the officers who uh, had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world, always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose, Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that as we are assembled before you to continue in our worship, as we come to this high and important point when your word is proclaimed lord you have declared that through the faithful preaching of the word that you will call sinners to yourself it is through your word that we are fed as your people that we are strengthened corrected instructed trained in righteousness lord we need your spirit for apart from your work in us and through the preaching of the word nothing will happen but lord we are here assembled as your people with faith in our hearts bless us lord Minister to our souls and lift up and exalt Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we stepped into John 18, uh, entered the night in the darkness of Jesus' passion. That darkness will eventually be broken with the brilliant rays of light on Sunday morning, but many events must first take place. Children, I hope that you've understand growing up in the church that for many years God has sent prophets, prophets in the Old Testament for 
a course of hundreds and hundreds of years, foretold the events that we see unfolding this night, even in the text that we've heard just now. God had told what Jesus would do when he came in the fullness of time. God also gave Moses a set of rules for sacrifices that also point to Jesus and what he would do. John is telling us what happened and showing us how Jesus is that sacrifice that God had said would have come. The sacrifice that the sacrifices that were offered up in the tabernacle and later in the temple again and again were pointing to one who would come and after offering himself up once for all would sit down at the right hand of the Father. They point to Jesus and here we see Jesus entering into that season of his suffering. Jesus is the only one who fulfills and satisfies the prophecies and the sacrifices. There is no other sacrifice for sin. Today we see Jesus, the Son of God, arrested, but he has done no crime. They seize him as a criminal. We're going to see Jesus put on trial before evil judges. The first of those trials we'll consider even this morning at Annas Palace. We will hear how one of Jesus' closest friends denies that he knows Jesus. And Jesus will be convicted, abandoned, forsaken, cast out, and isolated from all. He will be alone. This is what Jesus has told his 11 friends when they were still in the upper room, right before they went out to the garden. In John 16.32, John records that indeed, Jesus speaking, indeed the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus had no human companion standing with him as he entered into this dark night. We have three main scenes to look at. First is a brief and final look at what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second and the third take place in close hands to one another. They're at the palace of Annas, one within the inner parts of the palace, the second taking place in the courtyard, outside in the cold of the night. These last two are closely connected. We're going to have three main headings. We'll see they're tied to these scenes. The arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and the denial of Jesus. What we will see here is God's sovereign control over all the events in Jesus' dignity and divinity on display as he freely gives himself as a sacrifice for sinners, sinners like you and I. That's what we want to see, God's sovereign control over all the events in Jesus' dignity and divinity on display. We begin then with the arrest in John 12, uh, John uh, 18, verse 12, we find that John records, the Apostle John records, the detachment of the troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away. Think about this, children. You remember what happened last week? Children, you remember how when Jesus answered the question, who is it that you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he say? He spoke a word. He said, I am. And they were thrust back. They fell on the ground. So great was the power and the reality of that declaration that here this one who appeared to be but a man was the Son of God. 
And then John says, they bound him. The men got up, and they bound this one who had spoke with such power and authority, and they led him away. What we have to learn here is Jesus did allow himself to be taken. He surrendered to his enemies. Remember, that's what we said last week. Jesus demonstrated the power of God that he had the power that he had as God Almighty, but he then yielded to his foes so that it would be clear that his life was not taken from him, but he laid it down. He gave it up himself. He gave himself up as a sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' death was voluntary. It was the will of the Father, and it was the will of the Son. We see that clear. Secondly, we see in this contrast between those two events, it is clear that Jesus was not overcome because of weakness within him, and thus was taken. We should also note here that the extreme hardness of the hearts of these unbelieving men. Just think about this for a moment. Here are in this band of evil men, Jews and Gentiles, slaves, servants, officers. It's, it's a mixed multitude, and, and they're very different in many ways, and yet they have one thing in common, unbelief, and the hardness of their hearts and unbelief. They have just experienced a demonstration of the power of God. What was it the Jews were always demanding? Give us a sign, and, and Jesus provided them many. These men have experienced firsthand the power of God, just, just one brief moment of the power and the majesty of God to destroy sinners who would stand before him. They're unmoved. Such a hardness in the heart because of sin. It's a sober warning for us all. Children, you come week by week. You hear the gospel. Sometimes you pay attention. Sometimes you don't. But you, over the course of years, you've heard of who Christ is. Do not let your hearts become hardened against the good news of the gospel. Do not become indifferent about the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation for you. He has made a promise to you, children of the covenant, to be your God, and that if you would call upon his name, he will save you. Here are men who have just experienced the power of God. Something else in the contrast too. What else have these men witnessed? They, they witnessed the power of God. Witnessed the power of God. But what did they witness? Jesus, who spoke with such authority and power, tenderly healing. Malchus' ear, taking his ear, placing it back on him, miraculously, supernaturally, demonstrating that he is the Son of God, come to the flesh, healing this man with tenderness. Jesus didn't need to do that, but he did it because the Father would have him to do it. And it's a demonstration of the fullness of who he is. He is the very God of gods with all authority, but he is also the tender and merciful Savior that he would heal and yet they seized him with rough hands, and they bound him. They bound him with heavy fetters that would have bruised his wrist and his ankles if indeed they were bound too. These strong, cruel men mishandled him as they then hurried him along to the palace of Annas. Let us recall the words of David as a prophet speaking of Jesus. Psalm 22. 
David prophetically speaking of this moment at the moments that followed. What does the scripture say there? Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. There's no more compassion in these men than strong, angry bulls and roaring lions. Prophecy is already being fulfilled. We also will call Joseph. We heard about him when we went through Genesis a few years ago. Joseph, whose very name means Savior, who he saw was the Savior of God's people, God sending him down in Egypt before him, that indeed in the years of abundance the food would be set aside so that in the years of the famine not only Israel but the nations would be preserved. A clear picture of what Christ would come, that Christ would come to save the nations. And Joseph what was his? He was despised by his brothers, rejected by them. They sold him for the price of a slave, even as Judas had done to Christ. And then they led Joseph away, bound in fetters. Psalm 105 speaks of that, how his feet were hurt with fetters. That is Joseph. And so recently we have heard the prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where the prophet says he was bruised for our iniquities. Those fetters that bruised him, the bonds that were on him were for our sake. We should be in that place. We're the ones that deserve to be bound and led away. We're the ones who are guilty, standing condemned in the tribunal of God. And yet Jesus stood in our place. This binding of the rabbi from Nazareth was intended to humiliate him, threatening him as a lawless and vinyl, violent criminal as if that's all he was, just a criminal to be treated roughly. And indeed, the men who were sent out, their bosses had already decided. Decided long ago, we saw it early in the Gospel of John, they decided this man should die. Long ago, that was the sentence that they had placed upon him. But there's more going on. These evil men acted freely, and yet God is above it all in working in it all, sovereignly, fulfilling types and prophecies, as I've already alluded to. When God commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac, his only son, as a sacrifice, what was the first thing that Abraham did to Isaac? He bound him. He bound him. The animals that were offered up, his whole burnt offerings in the tabernacle and later in the temple, those that were offered up as whole burnt offerings were bound to the horns of the altar where they would be sacrificed. But here we see something more. We are bound in sin. And therefore Jesus was bound for our sin and led away for our sakes. He's our substitute. And indeed he did this so that he could set us free from the bonds of sin. Setting us free so that we'd be free from the penalty and the guilt of sin, but also free so that we need to not keep on sinning, that indeed we should, in the strength of Christ, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit and live for the glory of God. Because Jesus willingly endured this bondage, he secured our liberty. And after the resurrection, he led captivity here he is, he's a captive. And after his resurrection, he led captivity captive, all things under his authority. And he ascended on high. One of the commentators I read pointed out a lesson here that I thought was worthy of noting, just to stick in an application at this point. Let us never complain over our momentary and light afflictions. 
Even as God had appointed these for Christ as our Redeemer, God appoints suffering and afflictions for us, for our good. The dross is consumed by fire. God appoints these things for Jesus' sake, that Jesus would be formed in us. John records that they led Jesus to Annas. He wasn't drugged. He wasn't driven. He walked under his own momentum. And here again we see his willingness, his submission to the will of the Father, that they led him. And indeed we're hearing the fulfillment of the prophecy that it was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, led to the sacrifice of himself. He's led to Annas, the high priest. Uh, Leviticus 17.5 tells us that every animal that was to be sacrificed was first led to the priest. It must be inspected by the priest. And so even here we see Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. He is brought first to Annas. And even that night, Annas would have a responsibility for all the sacrifices that were going to be offered because the Passover season had come. So Jesus was led. The Lamb of God, who would soon be sacrificed, he also was taken to the priest, fulfilling all the requirements of the law given by God through Moses. And indeed, it was Annas that was the rightful high priest who would be responsible for these inspections and approval. And so Jesus was led from Gethsemane, and he would have come in through the sheep gate. Just the, the proximity, the, the, the natural flow into the city, he would have come into the sheep gate, which was the very gate that they would bring the sacrifices in because it was the gate closest to the temple. And thus it had the name the sheep gate because the sheep for sacrifice were brought in through it. Named so long ago, we see it back in, in Ezra and Nehemiah as the rebuilding of the temple is underway. Annas' palace was also near at hand. It was convenient for him as a high priest to be in such a place. But then that brings us to, to the trial of Jesus. There are three trials. There's this trial that only John records. It takes place in the palace of Annas. There's a second trial before the Sanhedrin where Caiaphas presides. And then there's the third trial before the governor, Pilate. This is but the first. All of them are unjust and yet appointed by God. So we see the trial of Jesus. John's the only one recording it. Some of the authors report uh, in detail the trial before the Sanhedrin. John doesn't deal with that as extensive. He moves from that this trial uh, to that he went to Caiaphas, but then we find ourselves when we come back next week in Pilate's court. John also supplies some information to the reader here in verses 13 and 14 about two men, these two men. There's something of a parenthetical, or it's like, you know, John says, you need to understand this. And so what does he say? They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, those of you that are well familiar with the Old Testament, you know that when God appointed the high priest Aaron being the first, and then it was to be Aaron's firstborn son, and so down through the generations, the high priest was the firstborn son of the high priest. And he was to serve for life. And yet we read that here's this Caiaphas who was the high priest for that year. And what we see is the realities at this time. Israel is dominated by the Roman Empire. 
and the Roman governor didn't care for it. And then just another back story is the, these religious leaders, including the priesthood, there was a lot of intrigue in, in uh, maneuvering for position and authority and power. And you can imagine if you're the governing force, you want stability. And so for political gain or maybe even for a fee, Caiaphas was high priest. He was more acceptable to the Roman government. Uh, perhaps he was more pliable uh, to their plans that he would do what they want. And so John regards, reports this. And so we find in the gospel accounts here that we're hearing about two high priests. Some have suggested that there's even four high priests uh, from Acts, I think it's 4 and 13. But here for sure there's these two that are high priests, Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. This Roman government had appointed Caiaphas to his like him a high priest. Luke uh, refers to Annas, who is the high priest. That's in John 4, 6. And it's most likely that he's the legitimate, by birthright, the high priest. And the people, would, when it came to their, their sacrifices and going to the temple to do those things that God appointed, they would have recognized Annas and not Caiaphas as the rightful high priest. We can imagine Caiaphas handling the political affairs and Annas the religious matters. It reminds me of, of Great Britain, as we've just been reminded with the death of the queen, that she was the head of government, am I going to get this right? No, the head of state and the prime minister is the head of government. So you have here, Caiaphas is like the head of government, and where Annas, he's like the head of state. He's the head of the religious institution. Such a contrast in the two of them. Now, John also tells us something else in verse 14. He says, now it was Caiaphas. So he's, he's bringing us back as readers to remind us of something he reported much earlier. Now, Caiaphas, it was him who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, perhaps as you read through John's gospel, you, you read through that and you don't give it much thought. But that's a very critical verse. What we're being told here is it's already been determined what the outcome will be for Jesus. The trials, they could have had a hundred trials. The outcome was already determined. It was necessary that he die for the people. John recorded that this was said back in John 11 and verse 50. Calvin comments, for God employed, this is significant, God employed the mouth of a wicked and treacherous high priest to utter a prediction, just as he guided the tongue of the prophet Balaam, contrary to his wishes, so that he was constrained to bless the people, although he desired to curse them to gain favor with King Balak. God also made the mouth of Balaam's ass to speak. So surely he can use a wicked man like Caiaphas to proclaim the truth. Caiaphas says it's necessary for us that one man should die for the people. You hear the political expediency, uh, the desire to preserve the position and the status. That's what G even he says, you know, uh, we need to get this thing under wrap. Let's the Roman government come in and take away our position from us. As there's, there's unrest. They say, you're not governing under us to our satisfaction. We'll just remove you men and we'll set up a government to our liking. This is what these men are fearful of. And so Caiaphas was a mouthpiece for truth as God used an ungodly man to speak prophecy. And let's again return to the reality. Caiaphas' announcement tells us why they're putting Jesus to death. It was already settled 
This, this trial takes place, the trials here in Anna's palace and then later in Caiaphas' palace. This is just for show. They want to give it the, the appearance of a legitimacy that, that they have done their due diligence. The verdict was already in. They don't care whether Jesus is innocent or guilty. They want him dead. People are too fond of him. He has too much influence and power, and it's outside of their control, and they're threatened by it. For years, all through John's gospel, we've seen there's times when they wanted to seize him, and he walked away, or they sought to stone him when he went even to Nazareth, and he walked through their midst, or we saw that they were going to kill him, and yet he escaped. He hid himself from them. There's something mysterious about that. When, why, why was that? Do you remember, children? We talked about it. What was the language? Jesus, our had not come. That's what we heard in the scriptures. John kept recording. Now, Jesus' hour has come. This is the time of his suffering. The time has come. John sets up a contrast then with Peter. You have this first account of Peter's first denial. Jesus is brought in. He's going to trial. Meanwhile, Peter is following along behind the crowd. They left the garden. It's dark. He's in the shadows, lurking along, coming along, and he's at some distance. And then John tells us that there's another disciple. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, who is this disciple? That disciple was known to the high priest, and he went in with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Who do you think the other disciple was? Many assume it was John, the author. But let us remember John, when he refers to himself in his gospel, he refers to himself, not by name, and in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But there's other reasons that we, can, we should, and indeed I want you to conclude this is not John. There's reasons why it's not John. John and his family, they're from Galilee. They're, they're fishermen. There's, uh, they're far removed from the affairs and the political structures of Jerusalem. There's no reason that they would have had a connection to the high priest's family. But also, if it was John, then he would also have been identified as a Galilean. They would have called him out just like they did Peter. Hey, they're from the same area. They fish the same shore. Uh, they, they seem to be compatriots in the, in the fishing of fish. And you know, he would have spoke like Peter. John 4.13 makes it clear that both men were unknown to the high priest. I'm not John. Acts 4.13 Acts makes it clear that both men were unknown. This is when they're on trial and they marvel at, you know, who are these guys? If John was this disciple, well, then they would have known who John was, but not the other one. So there's no scriptural evidence that this other disciple is John. So who is it? Well, we need to first conclude that if we were to know, the Holy Spirit would have told us. Now, two likely candidates would be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, we're, he's a rich man. We know that he's the one that supplies the spices. He's, he has access to Pilate. He gets authority to take the body down. Joseph of Arimathea is well known. Nicodemus comes with him, and he's, he's a rich man in whom Jesus, uh, that is Joseph's grave, it's, he's the rich man in whom Jesus' body is later buried. But you know, let's not wrangle too much with it. The other disciple sees Peter, and he invites him in. And here begins the problems for Peter. He should not even have been there. 
but we'll take that up in a moment when we come to our third and final point. Let's move on down past this first denial. We'll come back to it a little bit later. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples in doctrine. He's examining Jesus about his teaching and, and the following that he has gathered around him. Uh, he's acting as though Jesus has done something wrong by faithfully teaching the people the truth. This is what I've said to people, that the people commented that this Jesus teaches as one who has authority, not like our scribes and Pharisees. There's a contrast. So there's a jealousy on the part of the high priest and those with him. What Jesus has been doing is been being faithful and truthful. He taught the people God's word something that the, uh, the Levites were had to have been doing. Now, Jesus responds to him. He answers his question. I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues, in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have done, said nothing. Jesus says, my doctrine is open. It's proclaimed. I have taught the people openly from synagogue to synagogue, up and down through the land as he went from village to village in their marketplaces. When he was in Jerusalem, he came to the temple. There on Solomon's portico and other prominent portions of the temple, Jesus was proclaiming the truth. Even earlier this very same week, Jesus was doing that. So the Jesus asked the high priest, Jesus asked him a question, why do you ask me? Jesus says, if you're looking for testimony, ask the people what I teach. There's, there's thousands of witnesses that can tell you the things that I have said in the proclaiming of my instruction. Now, children, there's something remarkable that happens. Jesus is being asked a question, really not asked sincerely, and Jesus answers with dignity. He's being discreet. He says, you want evidence? Ask the people. You know, we've already seen that they don't accept his testimony as being sufficient. And so he says, well, I'll give you that testimony of more witnesses. But here he's asking him. Now, as Jesus answers this question, there's an officer, some officer of the court who's standing nearby. He doesn't like the way that Jesus spoke to him. And he struck Jesus. He took his palm of his hand and slapped Jesus across the face. Was that right? Well, certainly under the law of the, that was in place for such trials, it was not. No one was to receive any punishment until they had been found guilty. There's been no verdict out of this court. They're either still in the midst of the testimony. Actually, he's in Annas Palace and the Sanhedrin's elsewhere. The, the rulers of the people are not there. And so this, this uh, I'll put it this way, this officer goes totally rogue. He just hauls off and smacks Jesus across the face. He didn't like the way Jesus responded, and he just took it upon himself. What's interesting is he was bold in doing so. He was a certain brazenness. He had the feel of the room. He knew what the situation was, and so he thought he could even break their law and not follow their protocols. But what we see here is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecies. Again, Jesus being bruised and struck and suffering and being afflicted for our sin. In the larger scheme of things, Jesus is in our place. 
He's a sacrifice. Our guilt is on him. That blow should have been our blow. The suffering, as we said, the fetters, the binding out of him, all that should be ours. And here we see Jesus enduring that which he agreed with the Father to do, be the Savior of his people. There's no justice in this trial. They hated Jesus with a, a, a hatred that is hard to comprehend. And it's going to get worse before it's over. In Jesus' answer, he's not sinned in what he said. He did not speak evil against the man. And even if he was guilty, it was not right for him to be struck, as I said earlier, because it was unlawful to strike someone in the middle of their trial. And this isn't even really a trial. This is Ennis having his say. But let us remember, God is at work. And what's going on is Jesus has come to the priest in a sense to be approved as a sacrifice for our sin. He is ultimately the sacrifice. He is God's appointed sacrifice. It's for this reason he came into the world, to be the sacrifice. And so men are doing their evil will and their evil design, and yet God is above it all and through it all. This is what God has purposed, that Christ should enter into our place. And so when we see these things done to Christ, it's because... He's guilty because of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. That we sinners might have life in the Son. Verse 24, we find John moves the story forward. He's going to come back to Peter. It's not that what Peter does next happens after that, but he just tells us that outcome. Then Annas sent him, that is Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And the other gospel accounts take that up. We won't find that here. It is there that we find Jesus before Caiaphas and the accusations and bringing out false witnesses, and the witnesses can't even agree. And so finally, uh, Caiaphas asks him, you know, you claim that you're the son of the living God. Is that true? And Jesus says so. And he says, okay, there we have, we've heard it ourselves. He's blasphemed. He makes himself out to be the son of God. Now think about it, children. If he was just another man like your dad or me or one of our elders, for him to claim to be God, that would be blasphemy. That would be very evil speaking. It would be a lie and a fraud. But he is the Son of God. And for this reason, he came into the world to save sinners. Meanwhile, back in the courtyard... We come to our third point. It's interesting how John takes Peter's denials, and they're like bookends on either side of the travesty of justice that Jesus experienced. But then we see Jesus here, the sacrifice, condemned, guilty for our sake. What's on either side of it? Peter's denial. What happened in Annas' palace underscores or what's happening outside Anna's palace underscores the need for what's happening inside. Peter, we're, we're Peter. We're the ones that are there. And he demonstrates why we need a Savior, how faithless and feckless we are. Let's consider the denial of Jesus. What is it John tells us that occurred here? Peter, that near disciple denying 
that he knows the Lord. Children, think about it. I want you to imagine that somebody grabs you, they're holding you, but not even holding you. Peter's standing there. But somebody uh, sees your dad over there and says, is that your dad? You go, no. So you're sure, you know, you, you sound like, you even look like your dad. No, nope, not my dad. Oh, come on. I know I saw him with you. Didn't, didn't I see him walk you over here? Surely that's your dad. And you get him very angry and say, no, I don't even know him. Isn't that awful sounding, children? Peter did something far worse than that. But there's some things that are unfolding here that John records for us. The Holy Spirit wants us to see. We said earlier that the other disciple sees Peter, and he sees to it that Peter is let in. He brings Peter in. And the problem is Peter should not even be there. Why do I say that? Do you remember what happened in the garden? When they're arresting Jesus, he says, let these disciples go free. Let them go their way. Peter was free. He didn't need to follow. He didn't go. But Peter comes. Also let us remember in the upper room in John 13, 36, Jesus warned Peter. Peter's made this great boast. I'm willing to die for you, Lord. I'll go with you to the end, even to death. And Jesus said, no, before the rooster crows in the morning or this night. Roosters crow in the middle of the night, don't they? Some of you know that. He said, before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And what do we notice? Peter was silent. Peter, who's always got something to say, and the rest of the county has been silent. The next time Peter shows up, he's wielding his sword. But now here's Peter, no doubt out of shame and guilt, remembering his promises. He's, he's lurking along, even though Jesus has secured his release, that he's not required to be there. Peter's walking it out. You know what's happening? Peter's being sifted like wheat which is what Jesus told Peter, Satan desired to do with him, as Luke records it. But Jesus had prayed for him. In the garden, Peter was urged by Jesus to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation. The other gospel accounts tell us that Peter fell asleep. So he's been warned. The door is shut. He's been told to watch and pray lest he fall into temptation. All these things God has providentially prepared to keep Peter from the sin that unfolds in the courtyard. But Peter presses on. God in his providence has shut the way. And if Peter had obeyed instead of sleeping, if Peter had found the door shut and gone away, if Peter had never even followed, we would not read of Peter's three denials of his Lord. But Peter disregarded all the providential hindrances. Brothers and sisters, we know what we're talking about. We've been tempted to sin, and the Lord and his love for us has set barriers in our way, and we have ignored providential hindrances and pressed on sinning willfully. God has provided a means to escape the temptation as he promised that he would, and yet here's Peter pressing on, and so God removes the providential barriers, as A.W. Pink puts it. Here's an application, my friends. This is a solemn lesson for all. Let us take it to heart. When we disregard God's word and then look at providential hindrances, we might expect God to give us over to the sinful intents of our heart. 
Jonah resisted God's word and he fled and he met with a tremendous calamity, even putting other lives at risk along with his own. A.W. Pink says the outright providences of God must not be taken as our guide when we have refused his word and warnings. Here's the lesson from Peter. Don't miss this because we do. The outward providences of God must not be taken for our guides. And we say, well, it was providential. And then we're sinning. And we're seeking to put the blame on God. A.W. Pink again. The outward providences of God must not be taken for our guide when we have refused his word and his warnings. His word above all. His word must be supreme. Jesus, the word of God, warned Peter what was ahead for him, and he resisted all that, and he took the providence of this other disciple, opening the door, getting him access through the door, as being that I should be here, and he should have never been there. How many times can you and I say, I should have never been there, and I would have never had that sin in my life? So many lessons from Peter. So first we see the, the servant girl back in verse 17 who spoke to Peter. He, she opens the door for him. She asks him. It's an interesting way of putting it. It's, uh, she's asking a question, not an accusation. That's interesting, right? It's one thing to say, you're with him. But what does he say? She says, she says you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? She's not a Roman soldier. She's not armed. She doesn't have fetters. He just he denies that he knows the Lord. It would have been simple, uh, this servant girl, to say, yeah. But, of course, you know, there's fear of man. Fear of man overtakes him. So then Peter moves closer. Peter's absolute collapse on that first denial might have, maybe should have, compelled him to flee that place. Go back through that door he just came through and say, no, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. You know, the echoes of, you're going to deny me tonight, Peter, three times, and he's, I just did it once already. You ever been in the middle of starting to sin, and by God's good grace, you turn and run? Praise God when that happens. But Peter does, and what does he do? Verse 18, now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warm himself. It's cold. He, he comes up with, these are the men that seized his master and led him astray. These are the men who slapped fetters on Christ and led him away. And Peter's standing with them. Seems expedient, you know, our fire is warm, I feel cold. Tried to blend in. How often to do that? You don't have to be a young person. Sometimes as adults we do that, right? Try to blend in with the crowd. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. And so here's Peter standing, blending in with a company of evil men, just as we are told with the same exact language that Judas earlier that night, verse 5, had stood with them. Now Peter's standing with them. Do not stand in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1. Let us all take notice. Young and old alike, when we seek to blend in with a crowd, we will find it easy to fall into whatever they are pursuing. Twice we are told that Peter stood and warmed himself. Peter is cold. I don't think he's just cold on the outside. Again, 
we're in a room full of sinners. I'm your pastor, a sinner too. You know that feeling when you cross the line? You know, you stepped over the line. You have just out and out sinned. I describe it. Maybe we could say cold. Peter's away from the Lord. He's not just cold outside. There's a chill within Peter. Children, some of you children, I know, you know this. When your mother has told you something to do something and she asks you, have you done it? And you just look her right straight in the face and you say, yes, mother. And you know you lied. You feel something within. That's where Peter's at. And it's easier to do it again and again. And Peter did it again and again. Standing with the men, they notice Peter then, and they speak to him. Verse 25, now Simon, Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? It's the same thing the servant girl said. It must have been a, a, a typical way of speech for asking such a question. But for Peter, it should have said, I've already heard this question, and I've already lied once. That it there should have been a warning to him. But Peter answers again. He said, I am not. And then again, they ask him more directly, did I not see you? Notice who it is. A servant, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, who Peter, who's here, Peter cut off, Malchus' relative. He said, did I not see you? So they're standing by the flickering of the flame of the lights in the dark of the night, warming themselves. And no doubt he keeps looking at Peter. It's like, I think I've seen that guy before. The light flickers. It's dark, remember? And all there is the flicker of the light. And then he says, I remember seeing that face in the flicker of the light of the torches. We're in the garden. Oh, that's the guy that unsheathed his short sword and cut off my relative's ear. And he says so, but it didn't. It's a question. Did I not see you in the garden with him? An eyewitness. And we're told by the, one of the other gospel writers that, writers that Peter responded with a curse, with an oath. Like, I swear I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. It's a low moment, isn't it? It's a low moment in the account. You know, even when we read it all these years later, you know, we, we identify with it. There's something of this reality in our own lives. When, when we sin and deny that we know God because we live and act like the world, we, we know that moment. And here's Peter. Denying that he knows the Lord. But there's something here, dare I say, it's a positive thing. Almost I want to say it's a bright thing. There's something here. Peter does not deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So John wants us to confess. That's why he wrote this. And Peter has confessed this, Matthew 16. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the group, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter gave the good confession. And though Peter has denied that he knows the Lord, he has not denied that good confession. Praise God for his mercy to keep Peter A.W. Pink observes seven lessons from Peter. We'll run through them quickly. First, in himself, we see the believer as weak as water. 
I know you and my flock. We've had conversations. We agree with this. We're weak as water. Peter had taken the Lord's Supper just hours before, a means of grace to spiritually strengthen him. He's received the most remarkable instruction in the upper room. He's heard the most powerful prayer ever heard by the ears of men. And furthermore, Peter was warned, and yet he fell. We're of like nature with Peter. Sober lesson. Take these things to heart. Second, we see the danger of confidence in yourself. These things are added together. And this account of Peter's collapse in the face of temptation must be powerfully instructive to all of us. Thirdly, we see the consequences of prayerlessness. Peter slept when he should have been praying. Christ, the God-man in his humanity, depended fully on the Lord. We find him going apart to pray time and time again, sometimes praying through the night. And he's the Son of God in human flesh. How much more must we be devoted to prayer? I'm convicted, even as I give you that application. How much more must we be prayerful? Peter didn't watch and pray. And so the means of grace were ineffective for him, and he collapsed in the face of the temptation. Fourth, we see the great danger of blending and standing with blending in and standing with the wicked. Psalm 1 says, don't walk with them, don't stand with them, don't sit with them. Fifthly, we see the disastrous influence of the fear of man. Proverbs 29:25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. Why was Peter afraid to confess they knew the Christ? Because Jesus is standing bound over there. He's afraid that these same men might ban him, and he'll be on trial too. The very thing he said he was willing to do, but fear of man, in the moment, we will do incredibly awful things out of fear of man. Sixthly, this account should prepare us against having any surprise when our closest friends fail us. Maybe we're the close friend that fails. But indeed, God may God God agreed this to happen with Peter to teach us to depend more closely on the Lord. This was written for our instruction. We're like nature with Peter. Seventhly, God did not permit Peter to sin more than his um, no, God decreed and permitted Peter to sin more than his peers. Think of the 11 men, the other 10. Peter, here we find him sinning worse than any of the others. And that's a shame that Peter will feel. I want to put it this way, too. It's like Peter is getting the thorn in the flesh ahead of time. This event will be in Peter's past. It will always be something of shame and humility. And though God's grace will cover it, it will be forgiven. He will remember his weakness because Peter, shortly at Pentecost, is going to be exalted above the other apostles. And he will play a very prominent role in the life of the church. And just as Paul was permitted to see into the third heavens and to see things that was not lawful for a man to utter upon the earth, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. I would submit to you, Peter's got a thorn in the flesh up front. He'll never get past this in the sense of forgetting it. By God's grace, he's strengthened and he's living and he's bold and he's used of God. But that's always in the background. Some of us know something about that. We remember a failure and it sobers us. It hopefully makes us serious. It would stir us up to be more diligent and faithful in our conduct moving forward, not to be careless and prayerless, but to be diligent in the things that God has appointed for us. 
once boastful Peter was not the same sort of man after this night of denial. But to conclude then, we can be certain that Peter went away with a deep shame. We're told, and I think it's Luke's account, that he went out and wept bitterly. We're told that when he denied him, and that rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Christian, do you know something of that bitterness over sin, that bitter weeping? Peter did. But he was lifted up by the Lord. He was restored by Jesus. We'll see that at the end of the gospel. This is a lesson for all us all. Who among us has not stumbled on the way to heaven? We have, and we will. We all have serious sins that we are ashamed of, our own denials of Jesus, and we see ourselves in Peter, and Christ sees us as we are. It's for this reason that Jesus came into the world, to save sinners just like Peter, just like us. We're like this. this is, here we are. Here's Jesus going to the cross, and here's this vivid picture of the sort of men he's come to save. Peter, who's walked with him three years, who fails and denies Christ. Jesus came to save sinners like that, and he saves them. He saves us to the uttermost. We're not beyond the reach of his grace. Jesus willingly received the fetters that should have been ours. And he bore the reproach, reproach and the despise that should have been ours. And the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, who took Peter's sin to the cross. And indeed, all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Let's focus on that truth when we think of Peter. It's a great failure but it points to a great Savior. As John Newton said, late in life, when he was asked, I don't remember how the question was put, but what does he say? He said, but this I know, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. We have a merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous. Seeing then that we have a high priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. Have you sinned boldly? Come boldly to the one throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Amen. O Lord our God. We marvel at these things. Lord, we love the integrity of your scripture, uh, the manner in which it deals with who we are, even as it shows us Christ. Father, we thank you that you're not sugarcoated or covered up the blemishes, the faults, the sins, the errors, the failures of the great men of old, whether they be Abraham or, or David or even Moses. Lord, like Peter, we have an accurate account. Lord, that we would be encouraged, being like men as they are, that we have a great Savior who is able to save to the uttermost. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.